All right, you guys. Welcome back. Huh. No way, huh? Yeah. Uh, I'm Scott. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Welcome to it. Man, trying to get my act together here, man. Let me see here. Start typing in that space. Uh, join up the chat room. I just glanced at it, and already there's a very interesting conversation going on in the chat room. The answer is no. JDA asks, hey, Scott, did you ever see the list of congressmen the NSA caught accepting bribes from Israel to try to sink the Iran deal? The one article I saw linked was behind a paywall. I did not see that. Did someone release that? So now I'm trying to think of who it was that, uh, isn't it the Wall Street Journal? They wouldn't publish something like that, would they? I wonder where that came from. Where did that come from? What in the world is going on? I don't know. Anyway, I want to find out about that. Uh, wasn't it the Wall Street Journal that had that? I'm trying to remember. I'll Google it at the break. NSA Congress. I wonder why I don't remember which. It wasn't the New York Times, right? NSA Congress Iran deal. Um, yeah, I could have just Googled it right now, but instead I wrote it down for later. I don't know why. Today on the show, the great Gareth Porter is going to be on. Well, it's been a week. And he wrote a new thing. Very important. U.S.-Russia ceasefire pact closer to a Syria war endgame? And of course the answer is, yeah, we wish. Uh, guess we'll see. Um, uh, but also our old friend Jason Ditz, news editor at antiwar.com, is going to be on the show. And boy, has he got something for you. Uh, I told you a little bit about it yesterday. From the American Conservative magazine, ISIS and the End of Cash. Read an interesting thing from uh, Nick Giambruno about this as well today. It looks like we're going to have him on the show late next week uh, to talk about what's going on at Davis and the push for cashlessness. Wow, really is, just like in my conspiracy theory dystopia that I imagined in 1994, only... It's taken at least 22 years to get this far, so I should have not worried about it back then, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, boy was I right way, way, way before it mattered. I I quit caring by the time they finally came out with the damn thing. Now i got to get worked up all over again. Look, everybody, they're going to enslave us and make us all slaves. I mean, worse than now. Yeah. Uh, ISIS and the end of cash. That's uh, Jason Ditz coming up on the show to talk about that. So now I'm going to type on my website a blog entry. I don't know if anyone will see it or not, but they might. Uh, today's show, Jason Ditz and Gareth Porter. 12 to 2, Eastern. All right, now I just have to copy and paste a bunch of things a bunch of places. And then everyone will know who's going to be on the show. All right. So, uh, 
Yeah, I also have things to talk about. I apologize for talking about politics so much. I kind of can't help it. I mean, you know, it's somewhat matters, kind of. In a way. I do like the Frank Zappa quote that politics is just the entertainment part of the military, or what's he called? The entertainment division of the military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Things are happening that are worth exploring and explaining. Um, first of all, let's talk about the whole uh, Hillary Clinton super predator thing. Um, this is now my most popular tweet ever, I guess, is me saying to uh, Adam Johnson on Twitter that, man, she's a mean m her ain't she? Oh, look at that, 52 likes. Thought it was more. Anyway, uh, so here's Hillary Clinton uh, talking about black kids. She even calls them kids. She's not talking about adults. She's talking about kids in uh, 1996 justifying drug wars and harsher penalties for possession crimes. These people on, they are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often... The kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. <laughs> bring them to heal. Isn't that something? So, anyway, here's what's funny. Today, for the first time ever, CNN played that clip of Hillary Clinton saying that these black kids must be brought to heal. You know, like they're dogs on her leash. Because, you know, they're not really humans. They're remorseless super predators. And probably armed with illegal guns, too. For some reason, the illegality doesn't make the guns go away. It just turns them into illegal ones. Something. Kind of like drugs. Um, and anyway, so last night... Um, she was confronted at some millionaire's house by a young lady, and I'm sorry, man, I had, um, I actually had her name here somewhere, maybe I can find it. Um, let me see if I can, oh, Ashley Williams is her name. This young lady, Ashley Williams, have you seen the clip? They, they played it on CNN a couple of times. And um, she just opens up a banner. It's a private fundraising event, $500 to get in the door. Someone donated the money. And this young Black Lives Matter activist, Ashley Williams, uh, she didn't say anything. Or I think at first she didn't say anything. She just opened up a banner. Um, well, let me get it right here. I believe it said, we have to bring them to heal or we must bring them to heal. Is a, we have to bring them to heal is the quote. So she notices the quote. Uh, well, and then here. I apologize for mass incarceration. Okay, we'll talk I'm about it. I'm not a super predator, Hillary Clinton. Okay, fine, we'll talk you about it. you apologize to black people for mass incarceration? Well, can I talk? And then maybe yes. you can listen to what I say. Okay, nice. Thank you very much. Uh, there's a lot of issues, a lot of issues in this campaign. The very first speech that I gave 
back in April was about criminal justice reform and about predators. You're being rude. That's not appropriate. This is not appropriate. You want to hear the fans who respond to I know that you called black people Please explain the record. Explain it to us. You owe black people an apology. You know what? Nobody's ever asked me before. You're the first person to ask me, and I'm happy to address it, but you are the first person to ask me here. Um, okay. Secret Service grabs the girl and pulls her out the door, and Hillary ends with, okay, now back to the issues. And you see what's going on there? Well, a few things is that, wow, for the first time ever, someone's holding her accountable. And the only way they could do it is by crashing a party for a bunch of rich people. At first, all she did was just hold up the sign, and then Hillary decided to confront her about it. What's the sign? So uh, she started asking her, will you call black kids super predators? Are you going to say you're sorry for that? And she wouldn't say. She was sorry. She just goes on bluster, bluster, bluster. And then when the Secret Service grabs her, and she didn't, like, wave them over, but she sure as hell didn't stop them as they dragged this girl out the door. You got to watch the clip. It's really something I would say more about. I'm out of time for this segment, but hang on a minute. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, Al Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com. All right, you guys. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show. So back to Hillary in just a sec, but just a footnote here. It is a Wall Street Journal. U.S. spy net on Israel snares Congress. Uh, but no, I don't believe that they published the document or named any of the congressmen, did they? I don't think they named any of the congressmen. They just said, yeah, this is a thing. And, and of course, the whole, the whole spin on the article is, well, so this is what Israel was trying to do to influence Congress, not here's how badly Congress wanted to be influenced by Israel, which is the other side of the story. But anyway, um, and the deal is, here's how you get to a Wall Street Journal article, man. You just put the title in Google News and then uh, go through from that link. And it should work for you. And if that doesn't work, then um, do it again, except you got to clear your cookies and your cash and all that crap. Do it again, but then wait a second. Hover over the Google News link for a second. And if you wait a minute, you'll see at the bottom in your status bar, it'll change from the just plain old Wall Street Journal link 
it'll morph into some weird, really long Google link. Click that, and that will get you through around the Wall Street Journal paywall. At least, usually, although I heard they were trying to change it, but it worked for me this time. U.S. spy net on Israel snares Congress. Okay, anyway. So, back to Hillary Clinton is, she's such a jerk that she can't just say to this young lady that, like, yes, you know what? That was, uh, I totally was wrong to say that. You're right, and I am sorry about that. Why couldn't she just say that? No, of course black kids are not super predators. I didn't make that up, though. That was a whole stupid, wrong social science thing in the 90s that a lot of dummies believed in, and I was one of them. I'm sorry. That's all she has to say. That's all she has to say. Instead of just, oh, yeah, well, watch me. I'm a senator. I'm going to filibuster you, little girl. I'm going to treat you with total disdain. I'm going to refuse to look at you. And I'm going to use the advantage that I'm the one holding the microphone here. I get to dominate this conversation. I'm Hillary Clinton. And, you know, the first speech I gave was about criminal justice reform. Are you kidding me? This Hillary Clinton person, man. Okay, we'll talk I'm about it. I'm not a super predator, Hillary Clinton. Okay, fine. We'll talk about it. You apologize to black people for mass incarceration? Well, can I talk? And then maybe yeah. you can listen to what I say. Okay, fine. Thank you very much. Um, there's a lot of issues. A lot of issues. You got to love the crowd, too. Booing and hissing at this girl, but she's a villain. Very first speech that I gave back in April was about criminal justice reform. called black people for predators. You're being rude. That's not appropriate. Secret Service takes her out. Back to the issues, Hillary said. She can't even stop being the most condescending person on the face of the planet for just one minute. Camera's rolling. And then, so what's the spin on the other side? That the girl was rude? It's a protest. Oh, don't interrupt, dear leader, while she's talking. Well, that's the whole point, you see? That is, it's a proven scientific fact that that is the only way to get CNN to play the footage of Hillary Clinton calling young blacks super predators. Kids, she specifies. She's talking about kids. Helping to dehumanize them. To make it easier for government to wage war against them. You can't get CNN to play this footage unless you crash her rich white donor party. And then seriously, man, how many people, how much problem would you have? Even if you were lying and being dishonest, right? Even if you were running for office and you hated black people as much as Hillary Clinton obviously still hates black people. Couldn't you still lie? 
and say, man, you know what? That was 20 years ago. It was a totally stupid thing. It was one really stupid statement that I made. But, geez, I never wanted to lock up a bunch of innocent people. And I'm real sorry. And I want to make it better now. And blah, 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 blah. How hard is that? How hard is that? What does she think's going to happen if she admits that, you know what, man, that was not my best moment on camera. You're right. It was a, a poor choice of words, right? That's what Madeleine Albright would say about murdering 500,000 children. She would say, well, that was a poor choice of words when I justified it. That's all she has to do. It's like Madeleine Albright. Half-assed apologize for the things she said and ignore the things she did. She could have done that at least. Nope. Instead, she's just biding her time until the Secret Service will put their hands on this girl and force her out of the room. Out the front door. What a scumbag. That's my point of view. Hillary Clinton. She's just a terrible person. Kind of like Rand Paul. You know he's going to say the wrong thing because he's a terrible person. That's why he always says the wrong... That's why he always says the wrong thing. He's wrong about everything. And, like Hillary Clinton, he's a condescending snob of a country club fancy pants who thinks he's a lot better than he really, really is. Oh, thinks he's... Whatever. Anyway. That's all she is. Rand Paul without the perm. In it for herself only. Cares about herself only. Has nothing but contempt for the people that she pretends to be fighting for. And now, how in the world does she have the black turnout in these primaries so far, the primaries and caucuses so far on her side? as opposed to Bernie Sanders, when she was a Goldwater girl fighting against desegregation at the time that he was getting arrested fighting for it. I read a thing this morning by a communist or a, some kind of very hard leftist saying, damn Bernie Sanders, anytime somebody asks him about race, he talks about economics. Okay, but still... You know, and I'm not for him. I think his economic policies of, of socialism are, of course, worse for everybody overall. But who loves you? Who even who even believes that he cares about you and is fighting for you out of the two of them? And this critic didn't say it was Hillary, but to see their stance on Sanders was pretty funny in the face of Hillary, I'd say. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. Are you a libertarian and or peacenik live in North America? If you want, you can hire me to come and give a speech to your group. I'm good on the terror war and intervention, civil liberty stuff, blaming Woodrow Wilson for everything bad in the world, Iran, central banking, political realignment, and, well, you know, everything. I can teach markets to liberals and peace to the right. Just watch me. Check out scotthorton.org slash speeches for some examples and email me, scott at scotthorton.org, for more information. See you there. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at darrenscoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. 
Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. Darren'sCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. Darren'sCoffee.com. Hey, man, how's it going, y'all? Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. All right. I told you we got guests. First up, it's our friend Jason Ditz, news editor of Antiwar.com. That's news.antiwar.com. And uh, he's got this brand new one in the American Conservative magazine, ISIS and the End of Cash. How the War on Terror Became a War on Real Money. Oh, man. Welcome back to the show. How you doing, Jason? I'm doing good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing real good. Appreciate you joining us again. Um, very interesting stuff here. Uh, kind of thing I haven't been worried about in a long time because I was worried about this a long time ago and it never happened. So I thought, oh, okay, well, I guess that's not big, that big of a deal then. The push for a cashless society. But now they're really pushing for it and they're using ISIS as an excuse? Really? Yeah, well, ISIS seems to be a tailor-made excuse because because really it works as an excuse for anything. You just you just have to say, oh, it's because ISIS, and and suddenly you've got a decent chunk of the population willing to have iPhones hacked uh, to allow massive government surveillance. Really, anything. So so it's not surprising that eventually. With all this talk of uh, cutting ISIS's financing, that that they would settle on. Hey, uh, we go after the cash too. Yeah, well, I got that right. I mean, it is. I expect. I guess probably people are using that as pickup lines at the bar and everything, right? Hey, you want to come home with me tonight, baby? You know, ISIS, because ISIS. <laughs> um, Hey, let me ask you this, Jason. Uh, do you have a choice of microphone inputs there? Because the one you're on sounds kind of funky. Does it? Uh, let me try a headset. Okay. Skype problems, everybody. When it works, it works great. When it doesn't, it sounds kind of weird. But that is one of the one of the pluses is a lot hey, of times you can choose. Oh, try again? How is this? Yeah, that's better. Okay, great. Okay, good deal. Thank you very much for that. That'll, that'll help for the rest of the interview here. Okay, so... Um, all right, now cashless, this, that, whatever. Exactly, what are we talking about here? Uh, Larry Summers, who's he? Uh. Uh, well, he was he was uh, Bill Clinton's last Secretary of the Treasury. He's the guy that ruined everything for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, he became the president of Harvard, and uh... and ruined Harvard for everyone. Yes, uh-huh. and then what did and, he ruin? And when Obama was elected, he became the head of some. Uh, economic uh, committees in, in the administration that are working on economic problems. So, so he's, I mean, not necessarily a huge, right now he doesn't necessarily have a huge government position. Uh, he kind of got drummed out after the, uh, the bailouts because uh, he was sort of the mastermind of a lot of the bailout plans, but He's still very influential, especially with Democrats. Yeah, um, and I I should know this, man. I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, Fitzy G in the chat room points out that he was the Goldman CEO before that. So <laughs> that's basically all you need to know. He's uh, Ted Cruz's wife's former employer. Okay. As long as everybody's, you know, playing on the same uh, game board here and keeping all our... Uh, well, yeah, if he was the so Secretary of Treasury, it kind of goes without saying that he worked for Goldman. Right. 
You're right. Yeah, we should have just taken that assumption. Um, all right, now, so, yeah, real cashlessness, they want to get rid of the hundred first because, I guess, well, well, let me put it this way. Is this about ISIS at all? Or they just decided, hey, we really want to do this for other reasons and let's bring up ISIS. I think it's it, I think it's more that because really a lot of this has been going on for for a long time. Uh, there there have been you know op eds in the Financial Times and places like that calling for a cashless society. A lot of talk of the merits of getting rid of the hundred dollar bill and the fifty dollar bill, as far as cracking down on tax uh, tax evaders and making sure that there's a easily access paper trail for the government uh, on every transaction that takes place. And if two people are just exchanging money, there's not necessarily going to be a, a big receipt uh, trail for where that money went. Yeah. Well, and but so here's the thing, though, is they've already really transferred us to an almost cashless society already. And when they say things like, well... $100 bills are basically only used for crime at this point. It's not true, but it is seemingly plausible when everybody does use their debit card or their credit card for pretty much everything as it is, other than, you know, things that are $20 or less or something like that, you know? People don't even write checks anymore. It's all electronic. Right, and and that's increasingly true, although I I do find myself using cash if I'm at, say, a... Uh, a local store that I'm not familiar with, and I don't necessarily trust their uh, trust their uh, credit card system. Yeah. Some some places still don't accept credit cards. Incredibly enough, uh, I have a doctor that doesn't have uh, a credit card system. Yeah, and but... they don't take personal checks, so you have to pay cash. That's that's cool. I'm surprised they get away with that. Yeah. Uh, in this day and age, yeah. Well, and the other thing is, too, where notice how flipped around everything is, where if you want to leave your house and go and buy a Slurpee and then stop by a friend's house and run another couple errands and come home and not have that be on your permanent record in the totalitarian police state, that is basically impossible now. You cannot do that. And if you want to do that, then there's something kind of weird about you. Well, what do you care if they know whether you went to Whataburger or not? But the whole thing is because it's none of their damn business. That's why. Right. And and the burden of proof now for if you have a $100 bill on you, they're kind of expecting the burden of proof to be on you to prove that you're not a criminal. And indeed, a lot of states have these uh, cash forfeiture laws where... If the police stop you and you have a lot of money on you, they can just take it. And the only way you can get it back is to prove that it wasn't uh, a drug trade or anything like that, yeah. which is next to impossible to do because how do you how do you prove a negative? Right. Yeah, I mean, and to think that this is all stuff where just a generation ago or a little bit more than that, this is all Fourth Amendment stuff. You know, every every bit of this, at least people would assume is the kind of stuff where the cops would have to have a probable cause to convince the judge that we're going to find evidence of a crime if you let us look here, judge, uh, in order to know these things. But now it just goes without saying that everybody knows that every dime they ever spend is kept track of, where and when they spent it, and on what, at all times. 
we don't even think of it as you know surveillance it's so just natural to everyone now i think so used to it right and it and it's so recent i mean like you say the debit cards and and things like that those are a pretty recent development. I, I mean, I guess they've been around, credit cards have been around for the better part of a century, but you really didn't see them uh, as a mainstream thing until the last few decades. Yeah. All right, well, I got a correction um, in the email here. It says, Fitzy G is wrong. Summers never worked for Goldman. I'm sure they love him, <laughs> but he was never a partner or employee there. Oh so, well, if he that if sounds he has, pretty definitive from Bill in the email there, Fitz. What do you say? If he work for Goldman, he will at some point, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, he was the Treasury Secretary, so maybe that's just what he meant by worked for Goldman. Was just that's true in that capacity. Okay. But he's only in his early 60s, so there's still time for him to get a get a uh, cushy job at Goldman. There you go. Nice golden parachute. Uh, sure, he doesn't have enough yet. All right. Well, listen. Um, Music's playing already. The time goes by so fast. Uh, I got Jason Ditz on the line. He's the news editor at antiwar.com. News.antiwar.com. And there's so much important stuff there. I hope you guys are reading that all day, every day. Um, many of the top headlines there on the front page. And we'll be right back uh, with Jason to talk more about ISIS and the end of cash in the American Conservative magazine, theamericanconservative.com. Hey, Al Scott here. If you've got a band, a business, a cause, or campaign, and you need stickers to help promote, check out thebumpersticker.com at thebumpersticker.com. They digitally print with solvent ink, so you get the photo quality results of digital with the strength and durability of old-style screen printing. I'm sure glad I sold thebumpersticker.com to Rick back when. He's made a hell of a great company out of it, and there are thousands of satisfied customers who agree with me, too. Let thebumpersticker.com help you get the word out. That's thebumpersticker.com at thebumpersticker.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. On the line, I got the great Jason Ditz, news editor at antiwar.com. News.antiwar.com. He's written for a dozen newspapers and things like that, too. Here he is in the American Conservative Magazine. Oh, I just hit the wrong button. ISIS and the end of cash, how the war on terror became a war on real Money and uh, do I read you right here, Jason? That the the government's claim or or the media the government's claim is that someone told the Associated Press that the Islamic State uses U.S. cash, and so how the hell does uh, banning dollars in America affect that? Or they 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 claim they're going to ban the hundred dollar bill worldwide when uh, that seems to be the plan? Yes, uh, and. There was a single quote in an Associated Press article. It cited a, a Raqqa activist who was using a pseudonym, and he said that ISIS was a 100% dollar-denominated economy, that they only accept payment in U.S. dollars, 
and they do all their business in U.S. dollars. And that's simply not true. I mean, first of all, we sh- we shouldn't have taken their word for it in the first place on a story like that because we've had similar stories saying, oh, uh, ISIS is using Bitcoin almost exclusively or, oh, when ISIS taxes the Christians, they demand payment in gold. So that there are a lot of conflicting stories. But now this week's narrative is, oh, ISIS, uh, ever since some of their cash got destroyed, they're... Uh, they're charging higher uh, exchange rates on Iraqi dinars. And that story points out that uh, ISIS pays virtually all their salaries in Iraqi dinars. So the claim that they were exclusively using U.S. dollars simply isn't true to begin with. Well, and never mind that we're talking about, according to the scaremongers, a $2 billion a year economy there in the Islamic State. I mean, every report out of there, you, I'm sure you're reading Patrick Coburn like me. They're running that place into the ground. They got the crappiest part of Iraq. You know, they're trying to pretend this Islamo-fascist caliphate rules all of the Islamic world or something like that. But, you know, it's a stretch to, I mean, you could call them the most powerful militia in the region. No doubt about that. Maybe you could call them a state, but just barely. Um, to try to pretend that, uh, you know, it's just, it seems on the face of it to be a mosquito howitzer type situation here where, how in the world, and what, does he address, I'm sorry, I should have read the Summers piece here, but does he address what's supposed to happen when $10 trillion worth of bricks of U.S. $100 bills come flying out of central bank vaults all across the world other than Armageddon or what? Well, he he cites uh, he cites a study by uh, another economist who's uh, a significant British economist who works for the British government on some boards and also ran a semi-major British bank, Standard Chartered Bank, and uh, he did a sort of a policy proposal for Harvard calling for the elimination of the 150. And his argument was, because everybody knows that only criminals really use hundreds and fifties, that eliminating them would not be that big a deal. Well, am I just wrong that there are trillions of dollars worth of U.S. $100 bills in bank vaults substituting for gold bricks, basically as the reserves of virtually every other currency on Earth right now? Well, there are, and and if you think about it, uh, the the lot a lot of this is uh, in the Middle East is the result of the 2003 Iraq invasion. Because how did the Bush administration operate that occupation? They were sending pallets of hundred dollar bills into Iraq. Uh, we had stories back then of oh, a couple of the troops that were assigned to guard it went missing and turned up in a casino somewhere in uh, Dubai <laughs> or someplace with about 50 grand worth of hundreds that they just grabbed off of one of the pallets. Uh, but they they were just pouring $100 bills in as fast as they could print them, and there was very little uh, paper trail for where that money was going because they didn't want to have to own up to how they were spending it. That's amazing. It really is, you know, foreign policy as a Bill Hicks joke. It <laughs> just uh, keeps if, going on. 
if we could get back to Lawrence Summers, yeah. uh, another thing that's, uh, you know, maybe not quite as big a deal as all of his other, uh, positions in, uh, government in the past. His current, his current position, uh, is, uh, he's on the board of directors of Square, which is, uh, I don't know how many people are familiar with Square, but they're a credit card payment system that has a little, device that you can plug into your smartphone so you can take credit cards oh right so that company would benefit hugely if suddenly there is no such thing as cash and all transactions have to occur by credit cards that seems like a pretty big conflict of interest yeah well no there's no such thing (laughs) you know in america (laughs) that's called the way the system works (laughs) <laughs> and you're supposed to just take that for granted and use it for your own good if you can at the expense of the rest. That's the American way. Um, you know, I mean, seriously, you and me and our friends listening are probably the only ones who would even consider that a conflict of interest and not just business as usual. And would even, you know, think of that as something. Anyway. Um, all right. So, but now. Is anybody really buying this? I guess I did read a thing, and I don't want to completely spoil it because I'm going to have him on next week. But I got a thing from uh, Nick Giambruno from uh, Doug Casey's group uh, saying, hey, this is the hidden agenda of the Davis Conference in Switzerland, that this is the new consensus at the very highest level, is that they are really pushing now to phase out cash. Like, we are going to see the end of this. It ain't just this crank Summers Rota thing. We're going to see this implemented here pretty soon by, you know, the unelected elitist consensus meeting at their, you know, pseudo public Bilderberg group thing that they got going on there. Right. It really really does seem like there's a growing consensus among bankers. And a lot of it is the result of what interest rates have been like for the last couple of decades interest rates have gotten lower and lower a lot of countries are at zero at this point and so long as there's physical cash in the world you can't really go lower than zero on an interest rate if that and in fact the Sands article argues explain that, that. that explain that okay so imagine your bank account pays zero interest which it virtually does right now anyway if right. you have a bank account like mine i think i get an eighth of a percent a year. (laughs) Uh, But uh, imagine your bank account pays zero zero percent interest. Uh, The idea behind that for the banks is, oh, well, that'll encourage spending. There's no real benefit to having a longer time preference and keeping your money in in the bank. But now imagine if they could pay you a negative interest rate, which effectively is charging you money to keep to keep your money. Suppose uh, every month they take a percent out of your savings account for not spending that money. Uh, that would encourage spending even more. Uh, but of course, if there's actual cash and banks are starting to charge you fees just to keep your money... You're not going to use banks. You're just going to take all the cash out. Uh, if you have a significant amount of cash, it's probably going to be worthwhile to get a safe and just store the money yourself because then you're not paying effectively a fee for not spending it. Yeah. Or if you want to save it, you're just going to buy silver coins. Right. Something but, like that. Uh, 
ultimately, uh, if they can force the entire world on, or, or at least uh, the major economies onto these uh, completely digital currencies, they can set the interest rate to whatever negative number they want and just uh, say that they're stimulating spending. Yeah. yeah. It really is amazing. It's um, the kind of thing straight <laughs> out of the worst kind of science fiction dystopia when you think about you know the, what the results will be for the average person. Um, you know, I mean, it, it even, you know, this is the definition of the very worst slavery under Satan in the Bible, right? <laughs> is that everybody's marked in order to be able to buy or sell or trade or anything. Right. This and is it, the path we're Sam, going down. As Sands points out, if you got the G20 on board, that eliminates virtually all of the major denominations of money anyway. So... Even if most of the world didn't go along with it, most of them don't have currencies that are that big a deal to begin with. Oops, sitting here talking with my mic off. Sorry, I'm an idiot. Oh. <laughs> I do that. Um, yeah, you know, the other thing is, though, too, is the fear of the totalitarian police state that you and I are both thinking of. Uh, now, I think this is going to occur to a lot of people, too, that even if they don't even use cash, that they would like to have that alternative. They would like to know that it's at least possible in the world to buy or sell something beyond just barter without it being put on their permanent record, you know, going into their FBI file or their NSA file or whatever it is. Um comes down to it. I don't think you have to have a political ideology of any particular kind. To realize that, you know, this is a threat to the way you live your life, you know? Right. And, and eliminating cash outright has never even been proposed in a serious way by governments before. I mean, even even the most serious communist dictatorships during the Cold War always had cash, even if it didn't necessarily jibe with their, their entire ideology to have cash. They always still had it because... They simply couldn't operate an economy without it. Yeah. Well, man, it's really amazing. I'm really glad that you're out ahead on this issue. Uh, it's going to be a very important one going forward now that they're bringing this up again the way that they are. So uh, really great work here. I really appreciate uh, your time on the show about it as well, Jason. Well, thank you, Scott. All right, y'all. That is the heroic Jason Ditz. He is the managing news editor at antiwar.com. That's news.antiwar.com. You got to read them all day, every day on everything, on everything. News.antiwar.com. This one is in the American Conservative Magazine, ISIS and the End of Cash. And we'll be back in a minute. Hey, Al Scott here. The Ciceronian Society is an interdisciplinary group devoted to the timeless themes of place, tradition, and things divine. You are invited to their sixth annual conference to hear two days of papers on important thinkers from Plato and St. Benedict to John Locke, Hayek, and Henry David Thoreau. The conference is March 10th through 12th in historic Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, less than two hours from D.C. and Baltimore. Register at CiceroneanSociety.com. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. 
MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the thing here. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Uh, Gareth Porter's coming on here in a little while to talk to us about Syria and the ceasefire and what happens and this and that. Uh, but I got to talk about Donald Trump. I got to talk about Donald Trump, man. Um, oh no, that's too bad. Oh God. Anyway, sorry, I just got an email. Um, so here's my thing, man. Uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I'm with Ron Paul. Ron Paul says, no way I would not support Donald Trump as the GOP nominee. The guy's an authoritarian. Um, the way Jeff Tucker put it, he might be against the establishment, but that doesn't make him a libertarian. That doesn't even necessarily imply he's good on anything. And Tucker goes through a lot of examples in history, and he could have just done examples of American administrations being replaced and getting worse and worse and worse, one vote after another. I mean, we are talking about an election here, not a coup and an overthrow. Um, but he talks about, I mean, it's a significant enough shift, I think. It could be um, in who's holding the power in the country that, uh, well, you can at least see why people with power are worried about it. But anyway, so Ron Paul said his quote was something like, um, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders wants more government. Donald Trump wants to be the government. I thought that was a good way to put it, uh, the way he personalizes the whole thing. But um, so I think, uh, well, pay attention to what Ron says about Trump. If you ain't willing to hear it from me, I don't I, I don't know how many of you guys might be leaning his way. It's clear the neocons hate his guts. I mean, if you follow neocons on Twitter, they are terrified of this guy. And it's funny because their attacks against him are all the wrong ones because they're the neocons. So, you know, they don't know their ass from their elbow. They can't do a damn thing right to say their lies. Um... But, boy, are they against him. So I can see why some people think, well, you know, he's outsider enough that at least he's better than this or something like that. Well, I don't buy that. Not only is he bad on pretty much everything, he's really bad on the very worst things, like aggressive war and torture. Uh, avowed war crimes, like hunting down and murdering the family members of people accused of being terrorists. Uh, says waterboarding is nothing compared to what he's going to do to whoever it is accused. Again, drowning people to the edge of death over and over again. That's nothing compared to presumably electric shocks and uh, red-hot pliers and, I don't know, I bet he'll be able to find somebody at CIA to go along, huh? And he's bad on trade. He's bad on everything. Um, you know, he's bad on a million things. In fact, I got a list here. I've been starting to keep. Um, well, he's horrible about Muslims, horrible on immigration, uh, has agreed or 
I forget if he raised the prospect or at least agreed that, yeah, maybe we'll have to start closing down mosques here in America and keep a database of Muslims. He's horrible on Iran, horrible on Israel. Called for Bo Bergdahl to be executed, the guy who tried to travel from one U.S. Army base to the other so that he could rat on his boss to his boss's boss. So he could say to a higher commanding officer that things over at our base aren't going so well and we need intervention from above in the chain of command. Oh yeah, definitely guilty of high treason there, huh? Take him out and murder him, says Donald Trump. Uh, amazing. Uh, bad on taxes. Uh, well, and bad on everything. Horrible on all, you know. I don't know why the, um, the Israel lobby is so worried about him. He's uh, absolutely horrible on virtually all Israel issues. And they freak out because he said he wants to be even-handed. But that's just his businessman talk. He ain't going to cross Netanyahu. Uh, come on. He did campaign TV ads for Netanyahu, for Christ's sake. But anyway, I say all that basically just to uh, point out well, not, eh, I say it for, you know, its own reasons. But also, uh, it should help to make clear that nothing I say is in support of the guy. But I am very interested in the whole phenomenon of the dude and his achievements here, at least so far. I guess we'll see. Um, but it is very interesting because you have to be a governor, a senator, or vice president to be the president of the United States. That's the rule. You know, Hillary Clinton, she was Secretary of State last. She was Senator before that. Uh, so Cabinet Officer, but also previously a Senator, something on that level. Those are the only people who could be President. In other words, you're vetted long before the Electoral College gets to you. Like in Iran, right? Where the ruling council excludes people from the ballot. We got that too. It's not quite as formal, but pretty much it is. And you got to admit that there's hardly anyone else in society who is as rich and famous and determined as Trump is to be in a position to do what he's doing. And I'm not saying, oh, he's independent from, well, you heard me just say he's sure as hell not independent from Israeli foreign policy. Uh, I don't know why to think that he's, um, you know, his policies will be much outside the status quo of the entire establishment. Uh, you know, he, he says some things campaigning where he wants to free up the market in health insurance or something like that. But I don't know. as I told Tom Woods yesterday, uh, so I always tell you guys, as I said about Barack Obama back eight years ago when we were doing this, anything good he promises you is a lie. Anything horrible like bombing Pakistan, you can take to the bank. It's basically the same thing here. Um, but anyway... I'm interested in how he's getting it done, and there's a couple of interesting articles that I would have you read about that. I keep talking about Scott Adams, the author of the Dilbert uh, Dilbert cartoon, who has a blog. He, he's a hypnotist, a trained hypnotist and expert in how to win friends and influence people. You know, he's got like a PhD, so how to own your friends and manipulate them is more like it. You know, when you're that level of trained in manipulation, then that's pretty much what you do. Um, and so he sees all of his best manipulative qualities 
amplified in Trump. Here's a guy who uh, Scott Adams calls a master persuader at getting you to see things his way. And not maybe not you, but it works on enough of the rest. Um, but so then Matt Taibbi has a great article in Rolling Stone all about this and about uh, what Trump's appeal is to the people that he appeals to. And, um, and of course, it's funny and fun to read. Matt Taibbi is always great, you know. Um, and so that's a really good one. And then uh, Nick Gillespie, who usually is just irrelevant or boring to me. I don't know. I guess he's all right. But uh, Nick Gillespie from Reason Magazine, he wrote a thing about this, too. And you might have heard that this was the big controversy was that Trump said, I love the uneducated. And people were saying, ha ha, yeah, that. You'd have to be an idiot. Thanks, dummies, for voting for me. That kind of thing, right? I retweeted one like that. Thanks, dummies. That's what he meant. But actually, Nick Gillespie shows the whole block quote. And the point of it is that he he wasn't saying in a cynical way, like, yeah, I took advantage of you because you're stupid. Thanks, dummies. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, I love Mexicans, and I love the uneducated, and I love the everybody. I did good in all these different categories of people voted for me. In my victory in Nevada. And the and uh, Gillespie's point is, Trump is the only one who loves the uneducated. The rest of them hate us, you know? And we know that. And that's why they are so weak and he is so strong in the position that he's in. Basically, identity. Who's on your side and who's against you? He makes it clear. He makes it seem clear. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Coming up, Gareth Porter in just a minute. So anyway, uh, I'm not saying I buy it. I'm just talking about the shtick and why Trump's shtick is so powerful. Um, you know, he figured out real quickly how well it works, how believable it is, I guess, in its own way. When he says that, listen... I'm not really one of you guys. I'm a rich billionaire. I built a very successful business. But I might as well be one of you because I'm on your side because I'm against them the same as you are. And check it out. I'm so rich that nobody can buy me. So now I'm just going to do what it is I do for the whole country instead of just for my own business. And I'm taking your side against the people who've had all the power who've been screwing you. Now, he doesn't say, I'm going to give you freedom. He hadn't used the word freedom or liberty a single time ever this whole time. He doesn't talk about that. 
He just says, listen, you and I both know that the reason Johnson & Johnson gives money to uh, Jeb Bush is because they want him to give your money to them. And he would do it. But me, I say Johnson Johnson can go to hell if they don't like, you know, God knows what he's going to do to him. But they can't buy him. And it's believable because, after all, he is already rich. And he is obviously so egotistical that it's hard to imagine him, as Fitz was saying, or somebody was saying in the chat room there, it's hard to imagine bound down to Netanyahu or anybody else. When he's the king of the world, you know? That could be right. But also the opposite of that is the rest of these candidates. And Sanders also has an authenticity thing going for him. Um, again, I'm not saying I buy it and poke massive holes in it, but I'm just saying he can sell some authenticity that's pretty rare for American politics, I got to say, um, you know, and Sanders there. But the rest of them clearly have nothing but contempt for all of us. View us as nothing but cattle for them to suck off of and eventually consume completely. Um, and so I don't know how anyone has, you know, to if you follow the the uh, neocons or anybody else on Twitter, the Republican Party establishment guys, read the National Review or whatever. The things that they're trying to say about him, why he's illegitimate or, you know, what should be done, what have you. They're missing the mark by a million miles. You know, I saw a clip of Donald Trump yesterday. I didn't even see the clip. I just saw the I saw the um, the caption on it and that it was a clip and I didn't even need to see it. It was him, apparently, on David Letterman saying he supports single-payer health care where the national government picks up the tab for everybody's health care. And the point is, he's going to get away with that, too. Yeah, he's running to be the Republican. But he's going to get away with that, too. It doesn't matter what he says or does. I mean, maybe there's a way he could cross over the line. I mean, if he just said something really anti-Semitic or really anti-black... You know, use the N-word in a real cruel kind of context or something like that. Maybe they could bring him down with that. But otherwise, he's basically, and maybe even then, he's basically bulletproof. Because, um, as Scott Adams is saying, it's all about identity. And Trump has said, oh, yeah, no, I'm reaching out to Democrats and whatever. I'm, You know, he's kind of above, he's he's defining his identity as above partisan politics for the general election already. You know, trying to go for those Reagan Democrats, the working class, white union factory laborers who are, you know, culturally conservative and kind of aching to lean right anyway, but vote Democrat because of labor union politics. You know, uh, he's looking to win them over. And uh, he, so he's defining this identity for all Americans where any of the rest of these guys define their identity in much more narrow terms, like Ted Cruz, the single, truest conservative of all. Yeah, but who among us would want to identify ourselves with that? The the purest conservatism of Ted Cruz? Hmm. I guess some people, but for the rest of us, absolutely not. So very limiting kind of a narrative that he set up there. And anyway, you get the point. And my point really is, as always, basically, although I say it different ways, it's the tragedy of Ron Paul. 
people are just dying to hear this outsider voice criticizing the establishment and promising real change. But they told Ron Paul to go to hell two elections in a row. The Republicans did. The American conservative movement did. The same ones who are embracing Trump for his outsider status are the same ones who told Ron no. And why? Because he polluted his outsider message with freedom and free market capitalism and peace. And they don't believe in that. They don't believe in free trade. They don't believe in free enterprise. They sure as hell don't believe in peace. And they don't believe that, you know what, as long as we have an open market, things will more or less work themselves out. Nobody's promising utopia, but hey, the way you destroy poverty is by acquiring capital, everyone. Let's let's acquire. You know, hey, everybody, you can be free, but you've got to be willing to let your neighbors be free too and take that risk that they might do things that you don't approve of but hey it's their life not yours but you get to be free too and they told him no and then donald trump comes along and says yeah i'm an outsider all we need is for me to take total power and use it against they them those as ernie would say the others our enemies and and as Taibbi puts it in his uh, Rolling Stone piece, the enemies, the bad guys, they're always somewhere far away. The closest they ever usually get is Mexico. He doesn't even really attack D.C. that much. He, t- he attacks the press, but mostly attacks, you know, ISIS and China and Mexico and they, them, those who are far away while he's inviting everyone else into his tent, including Hispanics. That was part of his I like uneducated people, too, is I love Hispanics. And he completely beat the crap out of Cruz and Rubio among Hispanic voters in Nevada by, I think, double digits. He just completely creamed him because, hey, as long as you're here legally, you're invited into the big tent, too. That's his shtick. Um, so it's it appeals to xenophobia, but it's not really xenophobia, you know? The the xenophobes, you know, hear and see themselves in him in a way, but he tailors his message that way uh, to appeal to him without necessarily taking their same stand. But anyway, I'm almost out of time for this segment, damn it. But my point really is Ron was the one who was right, that all we need is peace and freedom and free markets and sound money and our Bill of Rights, and we'll be fine. And everything will more or less work itself out. And um, that's the real lesson. It's the middle of the road ought to lead back to freedom, not to fascism. Could have. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. Oh, ear goggles on. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. 
I got Gareth Porter on the line, author of Manufactured Crisis, about Iran's nuclear program that never was a crisis. Um, and also uh, about 10 million very important articles on all, thing, all things American Middle East policy and Vietnam before that. Uh, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Gareth? I'm doing fine, Scott. Thanks very much. I, I, I think it's wonderful that you are so understated in your... In your introduction. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know, man. I think uh, probably, well, look, I, I cannot claim to know the entire market. But as far as I know, literally, not just because I'm a fan, uh, yours will be the book that is the definitive history of the Iranian nuclear program in the 19, you know, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and, and the real truth of it, as opposed to all the terrible hype of it. So. Well, that, that I would not, and I would not suggest that that's an overstatement. But uh, you know, you you have a, a great way of, uh, as I sort of jocularly put it, understating the uh, the amount, of, the number of times that we've talked and the number of times that I've written. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, actually, we are in uh, the something hundreds. I think we're over two hundred interviews now. Yeah, we are over two hundred interviews yeah. now. Um, well, that's because you write things, and I like uh, reading them. This one is called uh, U.S.-Russian Ceasefire Pact Closer to a Syria War Endgame. And I guess the answer is probably no, but I don't know. Tell me. I think it probably is no. Um, I mean, you know, closer in the sense that, yeah, I mean, I, I think you can read it in two different ways. Um, c closer in the sense that the United States has clearly removed one of the diplomatic obstacles to um the Russians going ahead with their campaign in northern Syria, specifically uh, northern Aleppo province, uh, the, this, the area surrounding and, and north of the city of Aleppo. Um, and that that diplomatic obstacle, of course, was the Obama administration, uh, specifically Secretary of State John Kerry, continuing to hammer the Russians for um uh, supposedly hitting legitimate, what he calls, quote, legitimate uh, opposition groups. And, uh, uh, you know, I think this this agreement represents a clear step back diplomatically by the Obama administration from that position. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't continue to uh, uh, rhetorically attack uh, the Russians I think they probably will. But as I mean, the, the real headline here, the real story to me is the, the point that I include prominently in this piece, which is that the Department of State spokesman Mark Toner uh, a few days ago uh, was was grilled relentlessly by reporters. And they did really uh, push him very hard on this. Orig originally, initially, he did not want to address the question of whether the U.S. supported armed opposition groups were in fact commingled, that, that was the term that was being discussed, with al-Nusra Front uh, troops. But under pressure, he finally said, yes, uh, I agree that uh, some of these uh, U.S. supported groups are in fact commingled with al-Nusra Front forces. Uh, and he went on to say then that of course, uh, they have made a choice in doing so, and and this is very close to you know the the quote that he gave, 
uh, that that has consequences. Now, that's a very clear hint that the United States understands that it's impossible for the Russians to target al-Nusra front as a matter of military strategy without also hitting the the targets that have to do with the CIA-supported uh, uh, military groups. And that's a pretty big development. That's a major political development, it seems to me, in this whole conflict, which which means that, you know, the degree of sort of public uh, uh, confusion, d- deliberate confusion of the public by the Obama administration is actually increasing in a sense uh, as as it continues its uh, general rhet- rhetorical attack on, on the Russian campaign, even though, uh, in fact, we know that, that the U.S. government now acknowledges that the Russians were correct, <laughs> that they were, that it was impossible for them not to, uh, hit the, the U.S. supported groups, uh, as long as they were trying to hit the, uh, al-Nusra terrorists. Hmm. Well, now, um. So that's one side of it. I mean, I, I've only, oh, sorry, go ahead. The, the other side is that, uh, as I point out in the, in the piece, I, I really don't think that it's going to, not only not end the war, but that there's not going to be much of the ceasefire. It's going to be very difficult to identify where uh, an actual ceasefire takes place. Um, there may be some around the edges, farther away from the center of the the battlefield right now, but I tend to doubt that. And, and so I think that this is really more of a political exercise uh, the United States is claiming that they're, uh, they've agreed to this ceasefire in order to test the uh, intentions of the Russians. Well, I think that in some ways it's probably even more true that the Russians are testing the intentions of the Americans and uh, the other allies of these armed groups in terms of do they really intend to try to continue to maintain them or not. Yeah, well... And there's so many variables in here, too, because, you know, as you talk about, the idea here is that they're going to split off as many people who have been working with al-Nusra from them as they can. But why should anyone expect for that to be the result of even the attempted ceasefire here? It seems like the fighters are going to go toward the group that did not just sell out to the enemy. Well, I, I think it's it's true that that it seems unlikely, certainly that the vast majority of the uh, the CIA supported armed groups are going to be in a position to say, oh, "Okay, well, we see that our side is under terrific pressure here, so we're going to give up and uh, go in and and join the negotiations rather than continue." The war. I think, you know, for I mean, one we don't thing, even know if we can even get the Saudis to push them or the Turks to push them to want to, much less whether they would go along. Even no, with no, our I process. think that that's not even that's not even a question. I mean, I didn't even suggest the possibility that the Turks or, or the Saudis, the Turks and the Saudis would be willing to uh, to go along with that idea. I mean, the, the only the only incentive for one of these. CIA-supported groups to uh, uh, lay down their arms uh, even temporarily and uh, say that that we want to join the negotiations would be that they really do believe that the game is over, um, and and for the most part, I don't think that that's going to be the case. Uh, again, I mean, I think it's possibly that there, there's some strays that 
will, uh, in fact, agree to do so, but uh, they're not going to be an important part, I, I would expect, of the, uh, of the anti-Assad, uh, forces. And therefore, uh, this is not going to be a way forward to, uh, uh to severely weaken, significantly weaken the, uh, uh, the, the whole, uh, war against uh, the Assad regime. Uh, that is going to depend on, uh, really tightening the noose and making it impossible for the Turks and the Saudis to get uh, military supplies to their uh, to their clients. I think that's that's the main point that I, I tried to make uh, at the end of the piece. That was the conclusion. Yeah. That, well, and and that's if we can even get them to do that. But yeah. So, but now, and I'm sorry to ask you in this way, but well, and we got to go to break now. But I'll ask you in a minute when we get back. I guess I really don't understand what John Kerry thinks he's doing here because it doesn't seem like his plan makes sense, but maybe I don't understand what it is that he's really getting at. So anyway, we'll get to that on the other side of this break. It's the heroic Gareth Porter uh, writing at truthout.org, U.S.-Russian ceasefire pact closer to a war endgame. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. If this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Roberts & Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Roberts & Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with the great Gareth Porter about... The uh, ceasefire that's been negotiated between the Americans and the Russians that's supposed to take place in Syria among some of the different factions. And um, it seems pretty obvious that uh, Russia can get Iran and Hezbollah and their allies, the Bada Brigade, and <clears throat> we're going to talk about that in a minute, uh, and their allies to ceasefire um, if that's their side of the negotiation and and they feel like it, you know, and, and they think the American side is living up to theirs. And then, as Gareth is explaining, the Americans have conceded that, yes, our mythical moderates are embedded with the Al-Qaeda guys, which Gareth is saying is basically a concession to the Russians that, and I guess probably a warning to Arar al-Sham and the boys that you better separate yourselves from al-Nusra now or you're going to get bombed. We're selling you out at this point. And then so we're talking about whether they're going to then all just join al-Nusra and keep fighting or whether Kerry really thinks that they're just going to split off and then do what? Join the fight against the al-Nusra front and the Islamic State or just sit there and surrender or something or, I mean, he must be taking into account that he's still going to have a Rar al-Sham on his hands, right, Gareth? Absolutely. I mean, look, they, none of these people, Kerry or, or any of the other people in the U.S. government, have any illusion that they're going to split off the major, uh, the brunt of the fighting forces uh, allied with uh, with uh, Nusra Front. Rar al-Sham uh, is, if anything, even larger as a military force than al-Nusra Front, and they are really uh, joined at the hip with al-Nusra Front, there's no possibility that they're going to split off. Uh, they're, they're in the fight to the end uh, with al-Nusra Front. And, and I think there are other 
groups that are extremely tight with them, uh, there's no possibility that, that they're going to move. Um, and, and I think generally that is the problem, as I said, uh, throughout the, uh, so they Northern. really are stabbing them in the back, Bay of Pigs style here then, Aurora well, Sean, they're mythical know, moderates. I would put it a bit differently. I would say that Kerry uh, recognizes the reality that they're not going to be able to stop the Russians um, and that to the extent that he participates in uh, this this exercise, uh, you know, we'll call it an exercise rather than just a fiction, uh, to be polite, <laughs> Of, of, uh, you know, peace negotiations, which, you know, he really put his prestige behind a few months ago, starting in, uh, November, uh, particularly. Uh, you know, he's going to have to, um, he, he has to go through some process with the Russians that, um, accepts the idea that, you know, there, there has to be some, uh, reality check here on what is actually happening on the ground in northern Syria. And that is, that's an, you know, explicitly part of this deal that the Russians and the Americans sit down and map out where the opposition forces of all stripes are located. So, uh, you know, he really could not avoid this in a way. It, this was necessary to sort of continuing the, the, the whole, um, process of negotiations that he's embraced. And, and, uh, you know, I don't think I don't see John Kerry as as a dove here. You know, he's he's been a hardliner on Syria for a long time. Uh, he was one of the people, clearly we know, who uh, wanted to carry out the military strike in Syria in 2013, in, in uh, September 2013, against the wishes of the U.S. military. Um, but I think that he is also in the front line here, and he has to. Uh, recognize certain realities that impinge on his ability to carry out what he'd like to do. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that he is, he feels that it's possible, uh, to just completely resist openly what the Russians are doing, uh, because that brings the whole process to a halt. So, yeah. in, in other words, I, I think that he's, he's caught up in his own, in a web of his own making here that prevents him from really uh, taking as hard a line as I think he would otherwise. Mm. Well, and he's already skipping ahead, too, to saying, well, I guess maybe we'll just break the country up into pieces, Gareth. Well, I know he's he's hinted at this, and there's now a lot of talk, uh, I've noticed, at Press TV and, and Russia Today, uh, picking up on this Plan B business, uh, you know, speculating that, that it involves some military intervention, uh, that it's, uh, uh, a, a, a scheme to divide up the country into three or more parts and so forth. I don't think, uh, Kerry or anybody else in the U.S. government has anything so, uh, elaborate or, or so far, far reaching as, as any of that speculation. Uh, I don't think they really have a plan B at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, then again, I mean, that's what they've already achieved, right? By more or less starting this war and not finishing it and leaving both sides to hemorrhage to death, as the one Israeli uh, advisor put it in the New York Times, that they have split the country in half, east and west, haven't they? They have. I mean, it is, a, it is at this point a military political reality. But, of course, that is exactly what the Russians are challenging with uh, a great deal of effectiveness. And that's that's the real question mark at this point. Are the Russians capable of actually 
uh, tightening that noose to the point where the supplies cannot get through. Yeah. I mean, that does appear to be a serious possibility at this point. Well, and by the way, what's left of the Syrian army at this point? Because, you know, I, I say the east. Most of that is just desert and countryside, and there's just Raqqa and, I guess, a couple of other towns, but not really right. major Der cities Azur. out there. Der Al Azur. Uh, yeah, I mean, they do not have the troops necessary to uh, recapture the east, uh, the eastern part of Syria. They are going to, for the foreseeable future, be confined to consolidating control over the spine, the, the western spine of, of the country, which has, uh, you know, most of the uh, uh, economic assets and, of course, the vast majority of the population as well. And, and I think he would be very happy to be able to do that. Uh, I think there's been a great deal too much made out of a remark that he made in an interview recently. Uh, they're, they're sort of saying that he is now asserting that he intends to recapture all of Syria, but he was answering a question, do you intend to recapture all of Syria? And his answer was much less categorical than, than it's been made out to be in, uh, in most of the commentary about this. Mm -hmm. Well, now, on the other hand, um, in Islamic State, they don't have a disciplined army. I mean, they're still basically, uh, big ass version of Al Qaeda in Iraq, the militia. And they're more or less unopposed in their areas. But right. versus a real state army invading and attempting to conquer and occupy the city of Raqqa, could they would they not just have to turn tail and run if they were faced with whatever's left of a mechanized uh Syrian army backed by Russian air power, if not American air power too? Well, I mean, if the Syrian army had uh, reserves that, you know, was capable of doing that, I mean, I think that's true, but they don't. I, I just don't think that's... They just don't have the manpower to do it. That's saying. an option. Yeah, that's yeah. not an option for, for Syria. Now, you know, this is, of course, what the hawkish people in, in the United States and Europe are, are, you know, suggesting, you know, the United States ought to be thinking about something like this, but that's not going to happen. We all know that, and they know that. Yeah. Uh, it's not realistic. Um, it's political posturing for their own, you know, purposes. That's all. Well, um, I guess if anybody could take Raqqa, would it be the YPG with American and Russian support or no? Uh, you know, if, if in fact they could. That's the Syrian Kurds who've been fighting yeah, the Islamic if, State. If everybody. They could consolidate the control over their, uh, the territory that they hold, uh, right abutting the Turkish border. That would be true. They have in theory enough troops to do it. But again, you know, they they would have to basically abandon the positions that they're holding on to, right. um, and uh, they don't want to do that. So at this point, that doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, I mean, they can they can attack sort of limited areas of of the Islamic State, but I don't think they would be capable of completely capturing, driving them out of Raqqa and, and consolidating uh, the control over that whole area. So they've got their Salafist principality, and I guess it's staying at least for now. For now, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's and it's not it's not as easy to for even a modern, well-equipped army just to go in and and, uh, and just take over. Um, you know, there, there's going to be resistance, as there was in Iraq. Um, they they still have control over uh, several hundred thousand people, um, and you know that would be a, it would be a major long-term uh, endeavor. 
Man, the clock uh, goes by too fast here, uh, Gareth. Hang on with me one more minute so I can ask you about yeah. the Turks and the Kurds because yeah. um, here's where, well, there are quite a few different places where our friends are fighting each other, but this is the biggest and most important one. And I guess maybe if you could measure Erdogan's willingness to go along with American wishes at this point, whatever well, they might be. Speaking of speaking of Americans, you know, the people, the Americans are supporting fighting each other. Of course, this has now become a major uh, theme. It's be, it's becoming a major theme in the, in the news media, at least on the fringes of the news media. I see Buzz uh, uh, BuzzFeed has has just done a piece in the last few days uh, uh, under that rubric of, uh, you know, it's a proxy war of Americans against uh, you know, America's proxies fighting America's proxies. Well, yeah, and the special forces versus the CIA. That's the part I love about it. Well, that's true. That's We're... true, too. But anyway. And Nancy uh, Youssef had a great one about the Bada Brigade in Syria fighting the jihadists. I just love that one. <laughs> so so the question is, are are the Turks going to uh, sick? Uh, are they are they going to try to ally with some Kurds against uh, the YPG, is that it? Yeah, well, I mean, they've been bombing the YPG, right? And yet right, the right. the YPG are backed by the Americans and the Russians. So right, right. What, I don't understand what's going on. How carefully are the Turks targeting their Kurds they're bombing that they're not risking killing American JSOC forces? Well, I mean, that, I can't answer that question. I think the JSOC forces are... Uh, keeping well hidden uh i think that that uh, wh- whether they i must be overstating it that just can't be right that the turks our allies the turks are bombing the kurds that our guys are embedded with that our soldiers are embedded with but that seems to be the well, sum of it right what they what they've done is to shell them they've they've shelled them from across the border um that that's clearly uh, has happened um and uh you know that the reason is that the turks told the YPG folks that you have to stop before you get to the corridor that links the Turkish border with Aleppo. And the, the YPG didn't stop. They continued to take over territory that was part of this, uh, Russian, Syrian, Iranian YPG offensive. So that's when they started to hit them with, uh, with uh, a shelling. Um, and so, I mean, they are, they're definitely committed to, um, trying to do whatever they can to, sto- to, uh, to slow them down. Uh, I don't think that means that they're going to invade, uh, that they've, they've said that they would only send troops if it was part of a, uh, a coalition effort that the United States blessed and that the United States is not going to bless that. All right. Well, listen, uh, thanks very much. Come back on the show and explain all this stuff to us, Gareth. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. All right, y'all. That's the great Gareth Porter. The book is Manufactured Crisis. Read it. It's great. Buy it and read it. Also, uh, check them out here at truthout.org. U.S.-Russian ceasefire pact. Closer to a Syrian war endgame? See you tomorrow.